everyone. Welcome to Raising Allies, a show where we'll dive into intersectionality, conflict resolution, and showing up as allies. To start off, we'd like to introduce ourselves. My name is Emily Denayo, and I use she, her pronouns. My name is Matilda Meyerhoff, and I use she, they pronouns. My name is Mia Beeman Weber, and I use they, them pronouns. We're all in year three of the Girls Ultimate Revolution Leadership Series, or GIRLS for short which is run by the Bay Area Disc Association. And it's a program that gives young female identifying athletes in the Bay Area tools to be powerful leaders. In year three, we were tasked with leading some sort of an equity workshop. While we're used to talking about gender, the huge protests for Black Lives Matter and racial justice this year reminded us that it's important to think about equity from more than one lens. Because of this, we decided that we want our year three service project to focus on intersectionality. And we wanted to share what we learn about intersectionality, being good allies, and navigating equity conversations. On this episode, you'll get a quick Intersectionality 101 lesson, hear from an amazing anti-racist trainer and educator, and gain a better understanding of how we can push for equity and justice within our communities. We're joined by Kunsa Amin, an anti-racist, anti-colonial facilitator, trainer, educator, and organizer working towards a community-centered society. She now works as a facilitator and director of operations at both and, and as a director of community engagement at New York Gridlock Ultimate. Enjoy the show! So, can we get you to introduce yourself, your name, pronouns, and also how you got into Ultimate? Yeah, so my name is Kunsa Amin. I go by she, her pronouns. I'm interviewing from the unceded land of the Lenape people and my ultimate story. Not super eventful. I just was pulled in by some very friendly recruiters on a college campus who sold me on the idea of tossing around a piece of plastic. And then could you please briefly explain what both and is? So both and is uh, a collective of educators, organizers, activists, artists, what have you, who are rooted in anti-oppression work. So regardless of what title we take on, our main focus is to work to dismantle systems of oppression, whether that's through educating others, through conflict mediation, through art processes, but Generally, you'll find us doing trainings and the like these days online because that's where we all live now. That's awesome. So what does a day in the life working there kind of look like? It's very varied, which is also really fun. So each facilitator, they really decide what they want to do with their day, whether that's like working on design for any workshop or preparing for Uh, upcoming workshop. Personally, for me, I do a lot of the back-end logistics as well as facilitation. So all the fun graphics you get to see on social media is because I like to doodle around on Illustrator. We also have folks that are full-time in other areas. So some folks in higher education who facilitate with us part-time as well, but we're all just connected through this collective of both and. So now we're going to direct the conversation a little bit towards intersectionality. Could you first give your brief definition of intersectionality? 
Yeah, and definitions are so fun. We always have like working definitions that we want to improve upon. Intersectionality really for us is recognizing all the various parts of a person's identity that are always acting in a space. So as somebody who's a woman and a woman of color, you know, I'm subject to systems of oppression that women face and women of color. And I do want to say that, you know, intersectionality is rooted in what Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw said in regards to the law field of the oppressions Black women face in regards to the justice system of being women and Black. I just always like to bring that up because the fun thing about things going mainstream is that we tend to forget origins. And could you talk a little bit too about how intersectionality plays out in Ultimate, like why it's important? Yeah, I think the best example of this would be the gender equity movement that took off a few years ago that was predominantly led by very awesome women who were advocating for equity in terms of gender. And, you know, like we had more conversations about gender, but we're not talking about race. Like it's another aspect that's like very much present and is being ignored in this aspect. So I think that's where like this idea of intersectionality really took off in the ultimate Frisbee sort of like advocacy space. And yeah, seeing that shift was really nice. It allowed for players of color to start to talk about their experiences and not really just like feel veiled or incomplete under the umbrella of gender equity. So shifting over to like the work that you do at both end, um, do you have like a most rewarding experience or thing that you've done? I'm going to give a non-answer answer, which is I think I appreciate everything about the experience in that I would say that I'm very lucky that I get to do what at this moment is like my dream job and having the opportunity to build relationships with some of the most rad people I've ever met is probably the most rewarding thing I would say I've gotten out of both and. Through some of your facilitation work, how do you see things start to change? Like how does that play out in the real world? Yeah, it's it's really interesting seeing like over the course of even a few hours how folks' mindset is changing just by being in a shared space of practice. It's always very, like, it, it is a labor to create a space where you can have folks that don't necessarily know each other, be vulnerable, and lean into that discomfort. But that's probably my most favorite thing to see in a space where folks are willing to be vulnerable and build connections and not really be super scared maybe just a little bit fear of you know being wrong but shedding that as training goes on is there like any techniques that you feel really work in terms of breaking down those barriers and getting the conversation started i think two things work really well one is definitely being more of a listener and being an empathetic one and being able to relate your own journey to that of others you know I have my own learning journey in how I got to where I am. And another thing that we 
employ at both and like we always want to be working collaboratively and one of the things we do is cross power facilitation so if you're like in a predominantly white space but there are let's say other BIPOC folks present as well you will always be like working with a white facilitator or I guess like in my case I would be working with a white facilitator so that they can take care of any harm or like they can do risk mitigation in that space on my behalf. So we really like try to make spaces as risk uh, or low risk as we can for marginalized facilitators. So through that, like in seeing everything grow, have you had like an aha moment or sort of awakening for lack of better word, um, like while doing this training and like consulting and figuring it out? I would say... I don't know if this is necessarily a ha moment versus really where I'm journeying to, but I've only been working with both and this year. In like the starting point, I was very much in this mindset of education and, you know, like wanting to educate others and have quickly moved away from that to, I think, really focusing on how can I help folks leave with actionables and ways to contribute to their local communities? So like, I think that's definitely something that's been a learning experience for me the more I develop in my facilitation journey. I guess I'm just curious, like, why would someone call up both and? Like, what is the conversation they're trying to have? Is it often about intersectionality issues or, I don't know, and then how do you as a follow-on, how do you take exactly what they're looking for and frame the conversation you choose to have around that? I would say it's been a mix of, like, in this moment where we're grappling very explicitly with the effects of police brutality on Black and brown folks, we've had an influx of people that are wanting to do trainings. And you know, both and is still in its infancy, I would say. So we're, we're evolving as we, you know, come across new experiences. And in this one, you know, like it gave us a moment of realization that, well, one, capitalism sucks, and we need money to pay the bills. And two, you know, like, how can we work to do lasting work, I guess, not something that can be like checked like checking a box, which a lot of institutions have come to us for, but really trying to prioritize where we can do long-term meaningful work. So we kind of look for that in folks. And, you know, a lot of folks are coming here or coming to us with the hopes of, you know, connecting leadership on a shared foundation of equity and fundamentals. We've had some trainings of trainers I mean, it I, it just is how things are in that we've had a lot of white folks who have been interested in the work. So we've had a lot of workshops that are successful, like Shame, Resilience, and White People, Breaking White Walls, which is how to facilitate a white caucus space, and recognizing that that's not the only space we want to be operating in. We want to be able to kind of Robin Hood-esque take the money from the rich evil corporations and funnel it into local grassroots organizers and activists. I heard you mentioned the police brutality and I know that last week you went to a cop watch 
And so I'm just wondering, like, how that type of work you do, how does that play into, like, your facilitation work? I actually had to do some risk assessment, and I switched my role to home basing. So I was keeping track of folks that were out on the streets, actively working to shield black and brown organizers that were in the protest spaces. And that in itself has been an interesting process for me in realizing like, what are the limitations of what I can do? And, you know, where are other areas that I can help without putting myself at risk? I would say in how it impacts my facilitation, I would say it's more impacted my interest in what I want to facilitate. I'm like very interested in talking more about collective community care, you know, alternative methods to policing, things in that vein. And it's also like in connection with my political home, working with the Justice Committee, which works like directly with families that have been impacted by police brutality. So it's like really wanting to be like in the community and helping build community is sort of my focus these days, I would say. That's awesome. So what do you notice still needs to change? Like, I guess there's some obvious answers, but like specifically, is there something we can do to implement it in our regular lives? Yeah, there's been like a resurgence or I guess maybe like a spotlight on the idea of mutual aid once COVID rose up. And I do want to like note that mutual aid is something that's been existing for long times in indigenous and black communities because they can't rely on the state and or policing forces to keep them safe or even rely on them, period. I really encourage folks to like find out who your local mutual aid group is and volunteer. That's probably the easiest and least intensive thing you could do. And probably the lowest barrier in terms of being in a mutual aid space is donating or supporting folks that do need recurring aid in terms of like groceries and other essentials. So you mentioned mutual aid a lot. Could you like explain what that is or like what these organizations do? The idea of mutual aid is, I would say, something that supports abolitionist thought and or sort of like liberative societies in that, you know, we're operating out of oppressive systems. So like, we're trying to operate outside of capitalism in these mutual aid spaces and going along with this value of like, you know, everybody deserves to have essentials and everybody deserves to thrive. So how can we make that happen without the use of local, state or national resources, which are either structured in a way that doesn't help everybody or they just, you know, are not available in a way that can support a community? That sounds great. And I mean, I'm totally here for all of that stuff, but I guess thinking to some of the people you may be facilitating these conversations with, it is still seen as a fairly extreme way of thinking, I guess. So how do you weave that into these conversations you're having and potentially offer a less extreme, or I don't know, you you know what I mean? Yeah, the entry point. 
I mean, it's really making folks realize that we've been doing this work one way or the other. Like if we talk about it in terms of the ultimate community, like ride shares or like fleet donation drives, fundraising, things like that, that we do to support other folks on our teams or in our community, like these are forms of mutual aid. They don't have to be something that you are locked in for life and you have to like give away all your money to support others or, you know, dedicate your life to this project, you know, at the beginning. But yeah, just like having conversations about, you know, we're already doing this stuff. It's just like now we're putting labels on it and we just want to continue to do what we're doing. And so with holding conversations and like with making it have a low barrier of entry, like you talked about, where should people start if they want to have conversations about equity or intersectionality? I would say, you know, start with the people in your life. We talk about the systems a lot, you know, breaking down the systemic level of things, but a lot of work really happens on the interpersonal level, one-on-one with other folks or one-on-three where we're like building relationships, coming to shared understandings and, you know, just like talking on a human to human level. Yeah, we have a fun motto-ish thing where like everything works on that micro level and we just want that small work to collect and build to affect larger systems. I would recommend folks read Emergence Strategy by Adrian Marie Brown that talks about this micro-organizing and how it fits into the larger scheme of things. But the TLDR, you know, like interpersonal relationships are very key to this, which is not super labor intensive. You don't have to like go out there every single day, protest or put your body on the line. You're just talking to your friends and your family. Totally. And then I guess in terms of like thinking about conversations, I immediately think of conversations I've had on my Frisbee teams about both gender and race and sometimes they're done well but I guess do you have suggestions for specifically in the frisbee space how to go about those conversations? Personally I think it's really about creating a space of shared understanding so we generally call it a community of practice where we have a set of values or tenants that we're abiding by in a space with other folks that we may or may not know well. So creating a space of trust is, I think, really important, especially one where you all are sharing these values and tenants. So one that I'm thinking of right now that we use is assuming good intent and taking care of impact, which puts everybody in this space of like, you know, we can all have great intent and we will assume it. And if there is an impact that occurs that acts outside of our intents, we're going to take care of it collectively. And that doesn't make anybody a bad person. There's also, I mean, we work off of tenants like that and the folks that are leading the space. Again, going back to the idea of cross-power facilitation, If you are a mixed team, you ideally want uh, a person who identifies as a man and a person who identifies as a woman to be leading that space. If you're operating outside the binary, somebody who's envy, but supported by cis folks. So really like observing who you're talking to, what 
identities are present? What systems would be acting on those identities? Are there players of color present? Does that mean you need a player of color to facilitate the conversation? How are we taking care of the person who is facilitating? How are we taking care of the people who are being facilitated and are people of color? So I'm going to, as another collaborator says, land my plane, um, that be aware of the identities of the group you're facilitating and have that be reflected in leadership, facilitating leadership, and remember to like take care of the most marginalized in a space and not let white discomfort come at the expense of harm of marginalized folks. Perfect. And then, I mean, I guess kind of what I've seen after these conversations happen, we then go back into the same space and it feels like nothing really changes. How do you ensure that the change actually happens and that what happens in the meeting is actually followed through on the team? I think working to eliminate this idea that ultimate and this push for equity are two different things or that trying to create an equitable space is an add-on for a team or, you know, like, a great spec or something during tryouts or something like we want to build a culture where we recognize that folks that come in with marginalized identities, they don't get to separate those two things. And if we are talking about, you know, we want to diversify our team, we want to make it more inclusive. That means scrapping the idea that equity is something separate and not something that's integrated into every facet of our life. And, you know, making consistent, continuous efforts at holding these conversations and definitely coming out with actionables, I think is very, very important so that, you know, the learning has a place of practice as well. I really like what you just said. And I was wondering if you could give any specific examples of actionables allies could do or within ultimate what white people could do to make their teams and their communities more welcoming? Yeah, so something that I've been talking about here in New York and other ultimate organizers, other ultimate organizers of color have also been talking about is field usage and, you know, like where we're acquiring our fields or getting permits for. And A lot of times us getting a permit means displacing pre-existing communities that are using that field without permit because it's in their community, it's a part of their life to just be using it to play any of their sports. So one of the efforts that we've made is to try to remove this hostility that kind of has sometimes builds up between like, you know, ultimate players that have permits and soccer players that are playing on the sidelines within whatever space that we don't have permitted. You know, we came in, we kicked them off and they're waiting for us to leave because we have the permit. So something that is that we're doing is working to erase the hostility and trying to work with the soccer players that, you know, like we don't need that part of the field or we can like arrange them in some way that you still have some space to play. That's the probably like the lowest barrier of things you could do to not create hostility with the community. Obviously invest in other ways, like maybe getting the permits for the community for any events and donating them. 
volunteering in other ways in that community outside of just like pop in, play your league games and then leave. So just being aware that there are communities that exist outside of her ultimate bubble that we should interact with and learn to build relationships with. Awesome. That's super helpful. And I had not really thought about that before. It seems like we've done our serious section. Correct me (laughs) if I'm wrong, Mia or Emily, but we do have a fun question. We want to know what your superpower would be if you could choose, or if you want to do like a useless superpower. I know Mia has an obsession with the length of her sleeves. Um, <laughs> yes, I'm six six two, so the sleeves never really fit. <laughs> My if if I was going the useless superpower route, probably like being able to adjust the length of my rompers, which are always dragging out from behind me. But I think my first answer that came to mind was probably teleportation, which has nothing to do with COVID, even though like it would be useful. I am just a a very lazy person in that regard. Like I will wait till the last possible minute that I would have to start to get ready. Like if I need 30 minutes to travel, I, you know, give myself very little time to go out of the door. So teleportation. Wow, that was a really awesome interview. Mia, do you have a favorite thing that they talked about? I thought that it was super interesting how she framed the whole conversation about larger issues happening in the world. We have a tendency to separate all of these things and think of Frisbee as a enclosed community that doesn't really interact with any other aspects of the world, but that's really just not true. And even down to what fields we're using, I had never thought about that, that we could potentially be taking away community spaces from underprivileged communities. And that was just a good example of how it's all connected. The conversation is a lot broader than we often make it. Yeah. And I think like what she said about equity and Frisbee, they're not in their own bubbles. I think a lot of times we're like, okay, we're going to have our equity conversation. And we don't think about actually being like the constant thing that we need to work on and take actionable steps for and realizing that frisbee and equity race and gender are always playing out in the frisbee community but then also with other people outside of just frisbee yeah another thing that stood out to me that she was saying when we asked what we could do as people in a majority white dominated sport to like have these conversations while also being respectful and not talking for a community, but uh, instead trying to navigate a conversation that we might not necessarily be the most qualified to have. She was saying that the biggest thing that we could do was to just be empathetic and to observe and take the things that we see happening in the real world and try to be empathetic without talking for another person. Yeah, I totally agree. Understanding that sometimes it isn't our place to start these conversations and be willing to amplify the voices that need amplification. 
and then be willing to learn. I think a really good example of that was when she was talking about having conversations and having two facilitators, one who is from like a marginalized identity and then the other being from someone who has an identity with power was something that I hadn't really thought about before. You know, we've talked in our girl sessions a lot about it being really important to listen to women when we talk about gender equity, but also just having like male allies be able to step up and stand up for us. And also like in some cases they may be respected more by the people we're talking to. So I thought that was really interesting as well. Yeah, just like uh, making sure the leadership is representative of the team and specifically in those conversations. Yeah, and we do a pretty good job of trying to do that in terms of gender equity, like having on our YCC teams one male and one female coach, regardless of whether it's mixed or men's or women's. I think that's a really good first step, but we don't really think of it in terms of race as much because it's harder to pinpoint, especially when our community is so dominated by people who are not people of color yeah that's true I mean just thinking about it now how I and I know a lot of other female athletes feel when put onto a mixed team knowing that they need all of us to be on the team in order to have a team and I can only imagine how it is being a non-white player because that's an even bigger gap and being intentional about letting them use their voice and not being like, we want you to facilitate this because you're Black. Yeah, I think that raises up a good question of how do we find the balance between amplifying someone's voice and just being like, hey, can you like do all this equity work for us? Can you lead these talks when maybe that's not something they're interested in? Or maybe that's not something that they feel safe doing of how do we find that balance? And I guess part of that, too, comes down to, like, how do we get more people of color in Ultimate? That is a good question for the episode about race, because we talk about it a lot and we have a lot of ideas. But I think it's really important that we hear ideas from people of color and not just us being as empathetic as possible and trying to figure out what we should be doing. For any young girls out there trying to get involved in leadership in sports, please check out our website, girlsprogram.org. And that's girls as in G-U-R-L-S, like the Katy Perry song, of course. Of course. And make sure you check out both-and.org to learn more about the people we interviewed and their program and them facilitating conversations about intersectionality and equity. We'd also like to thank the Drive With Us podcast for helping us navigate the podcast world and learn how to edit and just generally providing mentorship. And check our updates for our next episodes about race and gender in Ultimate. Bye! Bye.